0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio Show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day a conversation that brings the state leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join in on the conversation. My name is Ray Pinney, and I'll be your host this morning. A couple of ground rules. Yes, I have opened the chat room today uh, for the first time, so if any of you want to try to get on the chat room, I will try to monitor that and the switchboard at the same time. Uh, one thing you should know if you try to get on the, the chat room, you have to log in to do it. Uh, if you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. To call in, dial one three four seven. 989 8904 one 989 8904 and when you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1 and that will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to talk. I have someone who will be screening the callers, her name is Christy, so that I can get the names of the caller and your question or your topic. Also, if you are on the phone line, I ask that you turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there's a delay and it's a bit confusing. Finally, I will not be taking callers right away, but be patient, I will in about 10 minutes or so. Charter schools are not new to new, Jer- new Jersey. They have been in the state for 15 years. While mostly found in urban school districts, they have found a home in some New Jersey suburbs too. The debate now on charter schools has shifted recently. It is no longer debated much on whether they should be in an option, but more on who the author- authorizers should be and who- how they're monitored and who should have a say into whether they come into a community or not. Governor Christie has made the increased number of charter schools a priority for his educational policy. In the past years, charter schools have received support from both political parties. Recently, however, the legislation involving charter schools has been a bit more contentious. Here this morning to discuss charter school issues is the CEO of New Jersey Charter Schools Association, Carlos Perez. Welcome, Carlos.
2: Good, good afternoon or good morning, Ray. Uh, thanks for Thanks for having me on appreciate the, uh, oh, my, the invitation.
1: My pleasure. Uh, for our listeners who are, might be a school board members or school administrators, um, what is the New Jersey Charter School Association? What is your mission?
2: Sure. New Jersey Charter Schools Association, we are a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization here to support and promote uh, the growth of a high-quality charter school sector in, in the state of Illinois, uh, I'm sorry, the state of New Jersey. Um, Our basic uh, idea is that we believe that through the infusion of high-quality charter public schools, that we can change the overall public school environment for the better for all kids in the state of New Jersey, Uh, and and that is uh, the basis of our organization. We've been around for ten years now, and recently we're going through some work to improve. um, I'm sorry, to expand our role. Within the charter space, and and we're, we're looking to expand that role. It has to do with making sure that we're not just creating new charter schools or expanding charter schools for the sake of ch- charter schools. We're really looking how to focus on how we expand the growth of a high-quality charter school sector, uh, and we really see that um, as a key part of our role here in in, in New Jersey. Uh, Carl. So.
1: Just a little bit about your background. How long have you been with the association, and uh, where did you come from? Because you made a reference of before.
2: Yeah, exactly. A little slip. Um, I've been at the association now for just under a year. Uh, Prior to that, I was in Illinois at the Illinois Network of Charter Schools doing the advocacy and policy work there uh, for about five years. Uh, my, My background here is in community organizing and community engagement. Um, around social issues. So actually, prior to getting into charter schools, I was uh, I spent several years doing community organizing and, and traveling around engaging people in the political process. Um, so actually, my, my view and my perspective on, on charter schools and their role in public education really is more along the lines of my my background as a community organizer in that it's important that members of the community have a vested interest in, in all matters that are important to their community. Excuse me, and and what I mean by that, and how I've seen charter schools be successful for that, is if you look at the way that charter schools um, historically and across the country have been brought forth, um, it is truly a remarkable and powerful opportunity for com- community members to have a say in in education. Um, and I want to go on a little a little bit of explanation of this because I think it's part of my background and part of why. Why I'm so interested in charter schools and 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 how they can impact public education. If you look at um, community organizing, community engagement at the local level, and if you look at public education at the local level, you often see a a bit of, or historically, there's been a bit of a disconnect. What you have is a lot of times at a traditional public school, you'll have a community uh, community event or community awareness night where people can come from the community and see what's going on at the school or Students can engage once and every so often with, with an event in a community. Or you'll see a, a parent or a teacher appreciation day, where every so often students can, you know, we, we put teachers forward and we put parents forward. When, when you have a charter school that is has the opportunity to create a school from the community level, to create a school from the parent perspective or create a school from the educator perspective, that is far, far more powerful than having some sort of than having any kind of like community awareness night or civic engagement day or or even a p- specific program, and and so from from my perspective, when you have a school that can be created and driven by those in the community and centered around a mission that is very clear and and can serve the particulars of that community, you have a very very different type of public education. Um, and, and that is one that, again, and the great thing in New Jersey, you have so many schools that are are grown up from the community. You can have a far, far more um, engaged public school that is driven by that community as opposed to the traditional way that we've always seen schools as, as, you know, driven through state mandates or from, from a top-down approach. So that's uh, a long history on my background and what brought me to this work.
1: <laughs> I would... Uh, no you bring up a couple of points and i like the so the role of charter schools you almost seem like an advocate we have a lot of small school districts who have the same view that it's a small school that brings people together is that almost how you see the the charter school i know some of them have a larger enrollment than others but they bring a kind of a smaller environment a a, a feel to public education at least in the communities that they're in
2: i think that's i think that's one of the uh, essential elements there When you look at um, what what makes a charter school unique is that, is at a very, very boring role, the role of the adults in in this area. Now, let me, I guess I have to explain that. Uh, When you have a a community, a smaller school, and and I I agree that there's ways to create smaller schools that can be far more engaged with the community. But when you have a charter school, because of the way the governance structure is set and it's forced to be created in that model, you actually have to make sure that that is what the school's mission is about. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that all charter schools will be community-driven. It doesn't mean that all charter schools will have the small school model or different types of model. But what you have is the ability to create a school in that way. And when you have a school, charter school and you have their, their charter contract or their expectations of performance, we can then see and you can create the school around the mission that is particular for that, that community. Uh, so, and, and and the great thing that we've seen with with um, a lot of charter schools is that it is when educators and those folks who have been engaged in education for years have some phenomenal educational ideas, the charter model allows you to actually implement a lot of these ideas that have been good out that have been good for a long time, and that's really what. Um, where, where, if you see a lot of the successful schools across the country, um, and even here in New Jersey, it is when you have those educators who have phenomenal ideas on education that are proven. They can then go and create an entire school around that, um, and and that is extremely powerful for for local education.
1: And I would say a community is not just a geographic thing because I know some of the charter schools have a mission that it would be more built about an interest, say in either language or something of that sort. So. By com- community you you're not just eliminating to geography so
2: to speak. Cor- correct. there's 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 the two ways we look at community. One is a uh, constituency of people who are brought together by a common interest. Um I guess that's the one way to think of a community and then that common interest could be geographic or that common interest could be um a particular vision or idea or, or culture or now I'm talking broadly about community, um or or history or, or common history. So you have that part of 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 community as well so um those types of communities can be represented in, in in a public school space through through charter schools
1: uh we're speaking with carlos perez from uh the new jersey charter school association if you want to call you can just uh, dial 1 oh, i forgot the number already <laughs> i'll get to it later i just flipped my paper uh but anyway carlos i had uh, another question you brought up the the role of uh, uh, the the challenges, you know, that you want to make charter schools better, and not just open charter schools, but you wanted to uh, make them strong. Uh, what are the challenges facing charter schools to make them that they, you know, so that they're not successful?
2: Oh, great, great question. I think there are a couple of of key areas to that, that stand as barriers to high quality charter schools that we need to focus on. Uh, the first has to do with allowing for educators and parents and communities to have an opportunity to drive the educational programs of, of the charter school. Uh, New Jersey has one of the most um, restrictive laws with respect to the um, autonomy of charter schools. Uh, it, it, there's all of, you know, in, in New Jersey, all the rules and regulations that apply to every school district also apply to charter schools. Well, about 80% of all charter schools across the country don't have that level of scrutiny. States like New York, Illinois, um, Louisiana, Colorado, California all have far more autonomy for the operators to run the school that they know um, works with respect to education programs. So that's a huge barrier right now to the quality of of charter schools. Um, uh, The second huge um, barrier second important barrier to understand has to do with holding schools accountable and how we measure schools to then be accountable. Right now uh, in New Jersey, we, there's a very, very basic way of evaluating um, not just her schools, but all schools, and it's basically your language arts and math scores and your fund balance. And if you cross a certain threshold, you therefore have a good school. Um, and, that, mm-hmm. and that's what we call as accountability. Um, or our, the other way we look at accountability is we're measuring all of the, the inputs. We're, we're in, our, in our annual report, we're counting the number of computers that we have in a school. And we're putting that on the annual report, and and that's and that's counting in input, as opposed to evaluating outcomes. So if you want to get to the, if you really want to get to the understanding of my, if my child is going to attend to school and they're going to be, you know, successful in computer literacy, let's not count the number of computers in the school. Let's assess computer literacy, uh, and then that's you know, per, part of that example. So we need to make sure that we're holding schools accountable, but we're holding them, we're measuring. The, the right areas, and those measures, those measurements have to do with student outcomes and school performance as opposed to all the constant measures of, of inputs. Uh, so
1: so that's, that's,
2: what, what, that's, I guess, how we're measuring schools are accountable, and we also hold them, have to hold them accountable. We need to make sure that we're holding them accountable for for all their actions as well, and, and I think that can be improved. And I want to quickly get into the third area, um, and then I'll let – sorry, I think you have a question. And that has to right. do with the funding for charter schools. Uh, we all we all know that by statute, ch- statute, charter schools are to receive 90% of the per pupil allocation that goes to to their peers in the district schools. Uh, in practice, because of the way the funding formula has been set up, on average, charter schools receive about 70% of the funding compared to the district schools, and uh, they would have no uh, capital dollars or access to facility dollars. So we're spending that already lower per pupil money on capital campaigns or, or facility projects. So that. That's a significant barrier for for schools because we recognize we need need adequate resources to be able to successfully implement these programs.
1: A couple things. Uh, You just uh, talked about the funding. So uh, you said 70%. Uh, I thought most people have the assumption it's 90%. How do you figure out your 70%?
2: Sure. It has to do with the money that actually comes through on the funding formula. So, again, like I said, in the law, it says charter schools are receiving 90%. Um, in a way that's, that's accurate, in the way that of what 90% is coming off. So through the funding formula, uh, not all items that are that flow to a district flow to a charter school, uh, and we know this especially in our urban areas where there's a lot of where districts rely on equalization aid. That equalization aid line item does not go to charter schools. So what happens is of all the funding items that go to both the district and the charter school, then that 90% is taken from that number. So if there there is no equalization aid, that number is already removed from the equation, and then 90% of the rest of the fund, I'm sorry, uh, adjustment aid, if there's no adjustment aid that goes to the charter school, then 90% of that fund goes to, of the equalization aid goes to the charter. So that's where the number then ends up around 70%. Um.
1: I, I thought it was interesting because you said there was too much scrutiny, and then you said you try to hold them accountable. But so the accountability, hold them accountable. You're kind of like what the governor and the commissioner have said is it's on the, how the students perform for the most part, because that's what we're, the education business is. Uh, is that what you're looking at? How how the whole charter schools, as well as all schools, I assume, uh, accountable is their student achievement. Is that one is uh, the focus?
2: That's absolutely. I think student achievement is, is the first piece of um, data that we need to collect in assessing schools uh, on their quality. And we also need to think broadly about student achievement as well. Uh, right now what we do is we look at the NJS scores for a particular grade uh, and we take a, a one-year snapshot of that school and then determine if, if that's correct. Uh, a, the vast majority of our schools are, are in urban areas and a lot of the st- these students are coming to our, our turf schools two, three, sometimes even four or five years behind, depends that what, what level of grade they're coming in. And so a charter school or or even a traditional public school can be very successful in moving a student up, Uh, say a student's coming into them at the ninth grade, but they're four grade levels behind. Well, in that ninth grade year, the school may actually move that student up two grade levels. But if you take a snapshot of their NJS scores, they're still saying that that student is behind. We need to make sure that we're actually evaluating student growth as a measure of uh, student performance. And you know, there's other areas, that, you know, high school graduation rate, um, college acceptance rates. And, and the unique perspective that charter schools can provide to this is something I alluded to earlier, is that each charter school is, is a mission-driven organization. And we need to make sure that we're having measures of assessment that are particular to that school's mission. So if a school has a particular mission and they've made promises to the community that this is going to be a school that focuses on, on the arts gonna be a school that focuses on sustainable living through to green living and and so forth uh then we need to make sure we have some appropriate measures to reflect is the school not just meeting the basics of uh the standard tests and standardized tests but also the the mission its own particular mission and the the promises that they made to the community with respect to that mission
1: okay um, let's get to some of the issues i, 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 I have there's quite a few but uh there was a bill A3852 about a voter referendum in some communities if they want that passed out of the assembly education committee that would if a charter school is going to start they had to go for a voter referendum now earlier in the day you said you were really about community involvement and input and you think charter schools have a lot of support so why would you have a concern about this bill
2: Well, I think there's, uh, again, how we're defining community involvement and input. And there's another concern about this bill, and it's another major issue that we haven't gotten to and I hope hope we do have a chance to get to, and that is with authorizing. Uh, I think one of the – or I'm pretty darn sure – one of the areas where we've learned from the first 15 years of of charter schools uh, 20 years across the country is, is that authorizing matters greatly. The way that charter schools are evaluated to be opened up, the way that they're evaluated during their charter term and then either renewed or or shut down is at the heart of a high-quality charter school environment. Uh, The authorizer is what monitors accountability. They monitor um, the autonomy. they, They keep that balance, right? And they make sure that they're keeping schools accountable. So what we're really focusing on at the association is to make sure that Um, we've been public about this, that we have a high-quality charter school authorizing environment, and part of a high-quality charter school authorizing environment is to ensure that every single charter school application that comes through does both meet the standards of how this can the school be a successful school, uh, but does it meet the needs of that particular community? Um, And again, needs can be defined fairly, fairly broadly, and it's incumbent upon the school to demonstrate the particular need in that particular community. And need could be that we want to take education to a higher level in a particular area. We need the need could be that we need to define certain areas of education that had not been approached in that particular community. Um, so need need that need is not necessarily how do we make a school not fail or a school not failing in a district. It could also be how do we take how do we add different areas of innovation to public education. And and as far as the community support for this, I think it's important to understand that the important voice in this are the parents that are sending their children to to the charter school or sending their kids to the district school. Uh, That that parent input is essential. And so for us to demonstrate the need and demand, um, it isn't one that comes through a public referendum or a public vote. It comes from parents in that particular community who have decided that they want to send their children to a school. A, a
1: particular so, school. so your concern, and I have a caller that I want to get to in a minute. Um, so your concern is that you may have support for a charter school in, say, a neighborhood, but that may not necessarily be the majority of the entire city or whatever the town is. But you might have a significant number of people who could make a school viable, but they, a referendum would be difficult because maybe 90% of the town has
2: nothing to do with the charter school. It, that, that that's it exactly. Um, when and that is, I think is a bit of a piece. But you know, when, when Thomas Jefferson wrote that, you know, you, you, the majority will will always you know vote down anything that's new or our challenged. We need to make sure that we're better. I'll better quote Thomas Jefferson: is we need to respect the rights of minorities. Um, and within the charter school, we know in the charter school and in the district, we know it will never be the majority of a community um, that sends their kids to the charter school. But we need to make sure that for those parents in that community that they do have an opportunity to send their child to a school that they see meets the needs uh, for their family and and their own students' interests and needs.
1: Yeah, I know uh, some board members, and that's always a problem with the school budgets. in that in almost every town, you never have the majority of the community, never is – part of this K-12 or K-8 school district. It's usually 25%. So a charter school, I guess, would be even less than that. Uh, we have a caller, and I think you probably know, know her, uh, Julia. Julia uh, Ruben, how are you? And you, what is your concern, Julia?
0: Well, first of all, hi, Carlos. Um, I, I just wanted to point out that... Hey, don't say hi to me? You don't say hi to me? Of course I do, Ray. Sorry. Um, so I'm calling uh, as a member of Save Our Schools NJ, and um, you know, I think we share a lot of um, the concerns of the Charter School Association in terms of accountability and transparency, and I agree with Carlos completely on the need to increase those. I don't agree with him that um, we should loosen the laws regarding charter schools, because I think the last thing we want to do is make any public school less accountable. But what I really wanted to focus on are a couple of other points that Carlos made, and I guess we could start with what you were talking about most recently in terms of the local control provision. Save Our Schools NJ has been working to pass this legislation um, since the fall because we are very, very concerned about the fact that New Jersey's charter law is very broken, and I think our um, our sense of this law is very different from what Carlos articulated. New Jersey is the only state in the country that has no cap on the number of charters, no local control Component over the authorizing process and yet expects local communities to pay for charter schools. So that combination makes us the only state that basically asks local communities to foot the bill but gives them really no input into the authorizing process. And I have to really disagree with what Carlos said about uh, protecting the rights of the minority. I completely agree with protecting the rights of the minority, but public education is a communal good, and a small group of parents doesn't have the right to spend the community's resources without that entire community's agreement. It doesn't mean you have to get every member of that community, but you certainly have to get the majority, because otherwise you're taking money out of the public school budget, and that's all of our money. It doesn't just belong to the parents of those kids, and you're spending it in a way that the community may not support, and it creates tremendously destructive influences in communities. You only have to look at what's happening in communities right now, whether it's South Brunswick or Milburn or Maplewood South Orange, there's just such anger and resentment that they are being okay. asked to All foot right. the bill for schools they have no interest. All income. right. Uh, Julie,
1: I'd like to have uh,
0: Carlos response.
1: Carlos, it's no secret that some of the charter schools that have gone into uh, suburban areas have been a little bit more contentious, I, I, and I think part of that is because the property taxpayers are funding that as opposed to the urban education where it's the state funds. Uh, which, and which can I just Ray, can I just... Schools? So let me let Julia. Yeah, yeah. I just she... wanted
0: to clarify we don't we don't differentiate in the suburban urban and you only have to look at what happened in Newark recently with the meetings where parents showed up furious and fought each other over this issue. I don't think this is about the suburbs. I think this is about democracy.
1: Okay. Uh well with Carlos, what is your con- uh, response to Julia?
2: Well I, I think there there's a um well, there was a lot that was in there. Um
1: I know, that's what I was trying to get to the first point
2: um the the first point of of I, I think that we need to make sure again that parents and, and community members have an opportunity to send their their child to a school that that best meets the needs for them and when you look at the role of of a public education as you know when you think of it as a, a what was it a a common good um, I think you're really then really misrepresenting of what education can be. Um, when we identify what's the right good for individual students, we need to make sure that we're evaluating what's best for for all kids in the community. And it's going to be very different. And once we start to try to do this one-size-fits-all approach to, to the kids in our community, we're really losing the opportunity to, re- to recognize and celebrate the diversity that we have within our communities. And a one size fits all approach just absolutely just does not work within public education. Uh, it may have worked years ago when when the public education system excluded a lot of people from it. Uh, but you can't do that now. Uh, we recognize that there's a whole lot of uh, diversity in our schools, and we need to make sure that the schools reflect that diversity of the kids that are in there uh, we're We're seeing if you're talking this as, as a statewide both urban and suburban area far, far too many of our kids are, are, are failing, and the system has been failing their students. And what we need to make sure is that it has not been the system that has continually been failing our students to, that we go to for the answer. What we need to go to then is how do we reverse this system? I often talk about charter schools as changing the dynamic of what we think about with public education. Right now we have the school system, the, the, the common good, that Julie talked about as driving education. Well, the role of charter schools is to actually flip that upside down, which is why you see this tug and pull. It is not supposed to be the system that drives the schools, but it should be the schools that are driving the system. And when you put educators and parents and communities in charge of driving the schools, you then reform the system. Uh, And and that is the the very essence and and the difference in our theory of change around this, that schools can drive the system. And those involved in the school can be a major part of changing the way that we're viewing education. And she also
1: Carlos, brought up uh, a point. Uh, Go ahead. Carlos, Julie brought up another point, and it was probably her, maybe her first point. Uh, uh, you brought up that there might be too much scrutiny of uh, uh, charter schools or a lot of uh, regulations, more so than other states, and she begs to differ with that in that you can have as many charter schools as you want in the state. Uh, give me an example of where you think there might be too much uh I don't want to say the word accountability too much uh, restrictions on charter schools.
2: Right, well it's too much regulatory restriction on charter schools. We're we're looking at um it, we're looking at all the reports that schools have to put in and we're calling that accountability. Uh, and I think I talked about that earlier. So it's it's not a right. matter of looking at all the reports and saying that's accountability. It's a matter of looking at student performance. We need to allow educators to to do their job. And any time that we are do their job, which is the next extension of that is in the best interest of kids, um, we need to make sure that they are allowed to do their job and not constantly faced with more um, bureaucratic creep or rules coming down from Trenton. But really, we need to allow those folks in the schools to make the decisions about what's best for the school. Um, and, and I have tremendous respect for a lot of people in Trenton, but... They are, They should not be the ones that are driving curriculum and classroom instruction. Teachers. Well, I would have to say, regular school
1: districts agree with you on that. I Go
2: would say
1: most. I would uh, think that they feel that they're. If you ask most superintendents and board presidents, they would probably be in line with that thought. Julia, I'll give you. Do you have any other brief comment? Well, I I, I, I want to get onto some other things. Absolutely,
0: so, I think the logical extension of what Carlos is articulating right. is vouchers, right? If you want to customize education to every child, and you don't recognize that it's a public good, then we should just take all of our tax dollars and divide them up among all the students, and just say, "Okay, you're on your own. Here's your six thousand dollars." And just like vouchers, I mean, the, the population recognizes this is not where they want to go with our excellent schools. We have the highest graduation rate in the country. We continually outperform other states, and all you know. And and the last thing we want to do is break that system. So I I. I Totally disagree with with what Carlos just said, and I will stop and let others weigh in. Okay, I'm going to just stay on and listen.
1: Uh, Carlos, and if, if anyone wants to call, it's one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, and then you just press one to indicate that you have a comment for Carlos or a question for Carlos. Um, let's talk about authorizers because that's a to to me that seems like it's a big role. Uh, it's important if you want to have accountability because it seems that they're the ones who do a lot of that. Uh, how can we improve who the authorizers are from your perspective anyway?
2: Absolutely. And I just want to, one other point that Julie mentioned, I think it just, I don't want to let, leave that out there hanging. Um, w- with respect to the, the funding of schools, um, you know, right now we know that, you know, we, that we see the funding, uh, and this is a philosophical difference that really changes in, in practical terms. Of whose money this belongs to, um, you know, we we really believe that it's the students' money and it's, it's the parents who send their children to that school's money to decide what's important for their education. And we often say this, um, and a lot of people just think it's just semantics, but it really is that the school, the money should follow the student, um, and it is that child's. Um, education that is being funded, as opposed to um, any organization—be that organization a charter school or or, or a district—it's um, it, the money belongs to the parents. Uh, and now to the point on authorizing, the the, the role of authorizers is extremely important. Uh, and and like I said before, the role of authorizers is to approve, oversee, monitor schools, and if need be, um, revoke a charter school if it's not if it's not performing. Uh, we know that in New Jersey, uh, the only authorizer is. Uh, The State Department of Education. There are, um, and then contrary to Julie's point as well, there are four states, four total states in the country where the State Department of Education is the sole authorizer. So um, I guess I don't know where she comes up with that. No local, there is no other point. We're the only one that's like this, but there are are three other states that have the same circumstances we do. So with respect to authorizing, we want to make sure that. The entity that can best effectively evaluate charter schools is is, is doing that. And we see that the the need to expand authorizers beyond the State Board of Education is essential. Uh, The role of the State Board of Education is to monitor compliance and oversee an entire system. And the role of charter schools is to make sure that we have education being driven at the school level. It's a very unnatural fit uh, for a for a state agency to really oversee and, and evaluate charter schools, because it, their role as a state agency is to oversee um, and monitor school districts, so it's a very—it's not a natural fit for them to do this work. Well, and, um, and so, what we're seeing is that we think that there should be other entities, uh, be they um, a, a state university, a public university, or if it is a um, an independent commission that can be created to so- fo- solely focus on authorizing. Because it, it, it's absolutely essential that, um, and this is part. You know, I think you mentioned earlier. There's the overcompliance and not enough compliance. We're trying to get the right balance. Um, I mean, our schools are filling out all these reports, but I want to make sure that someone is. Uh, these reports are aligned to the charter. They're aligned to the mission, and then that we have enough people who are evaluating these reports and are able to then re- re- let the school know it, through the reporting that you're putting through, which is aligned to your mission. Is your school actually meeting the, the mission that your school said it was going to be? And then give that information back to the schools and allow them to improve their practices if need be.
1: Uh, on charter schools, I think one of the points Julia was making, and I thought it was an interest, is that in a lot of states, the local school district can authorize their own charter schools. Uh, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. Would you be a... Opposed to something like that, like if the city of Newark wanted to create their own charter schools, uh, it a might foster a communication, a collaboration between the local school district and the charter schools, which we don't usually get. Would Would you support something of that sort?
2: Well, the I'll, I'll give the explanation, then I'll, I'll give you a, a straight answer. Is um, we've seen that local district authorizing is both the worst charter school authorizing and the best charter school authorizing at the same time. Uh, We'll start on the positive. It is the best opportunity for charter school authorizing for exactly the point that you brought up. When you can have an opportunity to have all the education within the local district and the district embraces charter schools as part of the portfolio of schools that they have and are providing to the community, we've seen that extremely successful. Uh, one of those examples is what Arne Duncan had done uh, in Chicago with Chicago Public Schools, really embracing charter schools as part of the overall solution to the entire public education. Um, at the same time, we've seen charter school, local districts be some of the worst charter schools authorizers because what they'll do is that whenever a charter school application comes in, they will automatically rubber stamp and say, no, we don't want the school to be in existence. So what we need to do is take the lessons of, of that. You know, It could be a phenomenal charter school application, and the district will just shut it down just because it's a charter school. What we need to do then is find a way to, to bridge those two. So, uh, yes, I do think that local districts should have the opportunity to authorize, but they should not be the only source or the only opportunity for um, a charter school operator to come into being. Uh, so if a, I think if a district wants to embrace charter schools and sees them as an opportunity to expand their portfolio of options to the community, then they should be allowed to do so. Um, but then if there's a district that is hostile towards charter schools, and and there will be, um, then we need to make sure that if a great application comes through, can really make, meet the needs of a community and meet the needs of kids in that particular community, then that school then needs to have a chance or an opportunity to get authorized um, from a, through another mechanism that may not be the local district. Um, And with respect Uh, to that, as we have also seen in in the educators and communities, when given the choice uh, between an embracing school district or um, an outside authorizer, if they're both good authorizers, more times than not you'll see that the charter school operator will work with the district because they know that there's an opportunity for that partnership and collaboration there.
1: Um, Let me get to one of the areas that uh, I've heard a lot of criticism of charter schools. And I know you have lotteries for students to enter, <coughs> and, but there's always been the studies that say that you have less special education students, ESL students, and the, the poorest children, e- despite the lottery, which is, I assume is, uh, you know, doesn't take anything into consideration. How do you answer that? Uh, I'm sure you've heard that
2: criticism at certain events too. Yep. The the with respect to the lottery, this is something that we are open to um more more transparency on. Um the the law is fairly vague on how a lottery is to be performed. There's other charter laws uh that are out there that provide a little bit more clarity uh, on the lottery that would provide a little that would provide some, some transparency on the lottery. Um for, for and then for the vast majority of schools we do see that schools are, are doing a good job with, with their lottery. Um if you look at the numbers uh, they're fairly reflective of the community. Um, one, one of the, there there are concerns, and I'll, I guess I can go piece by piece um, on, on some of the concerns that that, you, that have been brought up. Um, with respect to special education, we're finding that a lot of school charter schools have slightly fewer um, special ed students, but for the most part are, are fairly similar to the district. Um, so I, I think it's something that when someone just can say that, then if it's said enough, it, it becomes true. Um, but we also have to recognize that with a lot of schools, uh, or a lot of parents who have students and they've worked to get their IEP for their students, they want to make sure that um, a lot of times that they've worked to create that IEP with the school, they want to keep their kids in that school where they find that environment. Or they work worked so hard in that particular community that they found the resources, and it's very difficult to transfer um, a student with, with special needs. It's not an excuse, but I think it's, it's part of an understanding. With respect to ELL students, it's it's a matter of just looking at a map. Um, a lot of our charter schools are in urban areas. A lot of them happen to be in African-American communities. And families always send, you know, would always send their, if there's a good school that's near their home, that's always a preference for families. Uh, so, and a lot of buildings are available in, in African-American communities. And as a matter of logistics of where the buildings are, we're finding that's where the students are. So you're seeing, if you draw a radius around where the school is, that's more reflective of the population of the student um, than if you look at the whole district. Uh, and then, with respect to um, what was your third question?
1: Oh, uh, uh, the poor.
2: The, the poor. The, that's something poor that still- I, I I've looked at the information and and, and the study and I, I it's free and reduced lunch. It's fairly it's pretty darn similar there. Um, it might be slightly different. Um, but but again, it's reflective of where, where the schools are and in the, in the radius around the school, um, and and it's free and reduced our free and reduced lunches are, are are very similar.
1: Yeah, the criticism um, and, that I have heard was that uh, the the free lunch has you have a lower percentage than the the, the district as a whole, um, and you have more of the reduced lunch, which is not, not quite as much. It's not the poorest of the poor, and you're saying that uh, if I'm hearing you right. For a couple of these, that the geography of where they are still plays a major role, in that the geography is where they're getting the students who, who don't necessarily reflect the entire district; they just reflect that neighborhood.
2: Correct, and and then you know, and I'm also frankly a little uncomfortable talking about the poorest of the poor. Um, mm-hmm. I could use
1: that uh, better. I, I didn't frame. it. No, 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 no.
2: Uh, this isn't to you. This is this is the, the the public conversation that's going on. The thing of the poor, so the poor. Uh, Kids can learn um no matter what your socioeconomic background is you, you they can learn and when put in the right educational environment, they can learn um to me, that just sounds like an excuse for areas who have more poorest of the poor students um we We've got to make sure that every we have to, schools have got to take the attitude that no matter what the background of the student is, we can make sure we educate them and we can bring them up to standards now there are increasing challenges, but right now it's being used as an excuse or, or a talking-away point. Um, and, and, and and then the other part is dividing the, the poor community even even further. The the, the challenges that are there for students are, are fairly great, uh, so it's not like these guys are walking in with a cakewalk in, in, with their education.
1: And one of the other uh, issues that I've heard, and um, I think you addressed this in an op-ed, is that there's a the "quote-unquote" boutique districts, or the language immersion that some people feel are charter districts that are, uh, while they have a mission, they, that it feels like, like an exclusive mission. Um, how do you answer the, to that concern?
2: And, and I think that's uh, it's, it's, it's interesting the word how the word boutique came about this, and it's now the word is a slam, um, which is weird for me. But the reality is a charter school law and the history of the charter school movement was to find innovative new creative uses in public education it isn't to create more of the same type of public schools they are supposed to be different they are supposed to be unique they are supposed to find new ways to educating students and 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 my analogy to this is if you want to if you this is like in the creation of the charter school law uh the reason the charter school law was created was to have something different now the argument that we're hearing now is well, we, they should be um, they should be diff- they should be the same as before. Um, so that's like saying we have this bird and we want it to look like a duck and we want it to sound like a duck and we want it to crack like a duck. Well, if you want that, then you should get a duck. But if you really want something to be unique, as you've done in the charter law, to create innovative new proportions, then you have to accept that there's going to be innovative new educational approaches to school, um, and 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 embrace it. I think that's a lot. Of what I've talked about before is embracing the diversity of the communities and making sure that our public schools. Uh, through charter schools can reflect the different parts of our diversity of our community. Okay, um, unless my duck analogy was lost at all, but
1: uh, excuse me. Uh, local districts and and the charter schools that are usually housed in, in those districts. Oftentimes, it's urban. There's an adversarial relationship, I guess, because it's competition. Uh, I think, t- from my perspective, much of that comes over to funding, because there's a fight over the resources. Is there anything that can be done to improve that relationship?
2: I think the way to improve that relationship starts at the very heart of what education is, and that is how do we educate? How do teachers in the classroom best educate students in their classroom? And I think the way to really bridge that gap is to get teachers to work together. And find, I think what teachers in classroom classroom teachers who want to do the best for the kids have a lot in common. I would love to be able to see how we can engage and bring together classroom teachers to start bridging this gap, and I think that is the first area where we'll see this. If you can start having shared education opportunities, shared education practices between charter school teachers and in-district school teachers, uh, you can start seeing that that gap uh, being brought together, and you can start seeing some more collaboration, and I think that is where we need to begin. Um, with those in the classroom um, and really finding what's in the best interest of kids. If, and I think teachers and parents are the ones that can really think about that um, more so than uh, other groups like my, like mine or, or school boards or any other um, of us in the adult organization world.
1: Uh, in about 30 seconds, what do you see the future of charter schools in New Jersey?
2: Huh. I think we have. I think we have a fairly bright future uh, in, in New Jersey. To your point earlier, um, it's not a question of are they just going to be here or should they last, but how are they going to be here? I think we have. We'll see. Um, hopefully, a very, very strong, healthy growth of charter schools, and I, what I mean by that is high-quality schools that are really serving needs of kids all across the state, and I, and I think we can see that. And I think we should see um, some clear uh, expectations of what we want of charter schools and. Charter schools meeting those expectations
1: uh, that brings us towards the end of uh, conversations of New Jersey education I'd like to thank Carlos Perez for joining me today um, and our next show is going to be a special show on Tuesday June 14th we are going to have uh, a meeting uh, Mike Bransack and I the director of GR will be discussing some of the the, le- the, end of the legislative session and we'll also have members of the NJSBA's legislative committee and urban boards committee uh, on the air So I hope you feel free to join us then. And as I said, that brings us to the end, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. As I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. Thank you, Carlos, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye now.